Hello, this is Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in the digital age. This is episode 66, and today I'm joined by Dean Rayberger and Mark Fisher here in New York City at the Ithaca Sustainable Scholarship meeting. Uh, Dean is the director of Matrix, the Digital Humanities and Social Science Center at Michigan State University. He specializes in u- using online technologies and developing educational resources for the World Wide Web, and he has run numerous faculty and technology workshops and given presentations for educators, ed- educators and cultural heritage workers from local, national, and international audiences. Mark Fisher is lecturer in the philosophy department at Pennsylvania State University, and he is director of teaching and learning with technology in the Department of Philosophy at Penn State. He also joined me, I think, for a number of other episodes of the Digital Dialogue, I think episode 61 or something on the Public Philosophy Journal. Uh, His academic work focuses on Immanuel Kant, and he is the co-principal investigator of the Public Philosophy Journal, and uh, that's why we're here today at the Ithaca Conference in New York to talk about the Public Philosophy Journal and to uh, learn about sustainable scholarship. We have uh, received a Mellon grant for $200. $36,000, $36,000, so congratulations to us all for that. Uh, and this is going to be a collaborative endeavor with Michigan State and Penn State, so we're very excited about that. So maybe, Mark, you could talk a, a briefly about uh, the Public Philosophy Journal, the idea behind it, and then we'll, we'll talk maybe a little bit about the, the planning phase of this. Sure. Um, the Public Philosophy Journal is, is conceived of as an open access, open peer review uh, journal um, that will be specifically devoted to uh, philosophical dialogue concerning concerning issues that are also of, of wide or broad uh, public concern. Um, the idea grew out of some conversations that uh, Chris and I had about ways that uh, we could think about leveraging uh, new media uh, to, um, to, to both uh, produce uh, quality scholarship and also to produce it in such a way that, um, uh, that the, the, the means of production itself is open and, and, and traceable and, and, uh, and, and archived. Uh, in ways that would be helpful um, uh, for all sorts of others. Who right. So as we had this idea, we thought, uh, you know, I had met Dean a few years ago in... Uh, that long? A, uh, well, yeah, maybe. A year and a half, maybe, right? Uh, at the uh, CIC uh, Digital Humanities mm-hmm. Summit in Nebraska. Mm-hmm. And... Um, as Mark and I were sort of fleshing out this idea, we knew at Penn State we probably wouldn't be able to pull it off technologically. So I said, but I do know somebody who can, and it was you, Dean. So maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of the thinking about the technology behind this whole idea. We, we intend to really crawl the web, listen to the web for conversations and uh, uh, at the intersection of philosophy and the public sphere. And, um, and then we're going to have a whole peer review process that uh, involves some pretty um, substantive technological challenges. Yeah, we're really excited about this because I think it offers up uh, some real challenges. I think there's nothing under more pressure in recent years in scholarly publishing, and there's really changes that are taking place that are significant in the way we think about scholarly publishing. Not only is it much more difficult with the scholarly presses to get monograph published, but the peer review process kind of bogs down getting out timely information. And what we're really interested in is not only kind of entering into that arena and seeing what we can do with the technology, but I think it's really going to be significant to make big changes as it comes down the line. So for us, what we've been doing even before the grant got started is we've been exploring a lot of the existing technologies out there, what can be done, what can't be done. And 
there's lots of open source tools. So for the next few months, what we're going to be doing is really kind of doing twofold approach to this. One is we're all going to gather and think about what are the feature sets that we really want to work right. for this. And, uh, you know, how do we think it's going to work? And we're also going to be exploring in the existing open source technologies what kind of feature sets exist, you know, what can we use, what can't be used. There's a lot of really good products out there. There's a lot of really problematic products out there mm -hmm. that look good on the surface, but once you dive into the code, can be much more problematic. The thing that I'm um, really most interested in is the public engagement here. So if we're really to make this successful, it has to be an interface that invites people to participate. Um, and that's a difficult trick. Yeah. You know, a lot of interfaces from Facebook on down tend to be a challenge. <laughs> and unless they're, you know, you can get away with that if you're Facebook and you, and you want to be used, but, you know, often it's the simplest technologies like Google right. that succeed, um, that invite people to kind of use them over and over again. So we kind of can balance the simplicity, ease of use with the sophistication of the kind of feature set that we want for the particular thing. In also, if we think about the interface, if that's one important part of this, but I think what's really going to be important is kind of behind the scenes, mm. which again will involve kind of interfaces for how do reviewers engage this? How do we crawl the web and get information and give it to users in a, in a, in a usable and sensible way? Yeah. You know? Well, with regard to the, the, just the, the user interface at the, at the you know, surface of it, um, you know, we, we've got a challenge also with regard to our audience. So we've got a, an audience of a very wide public, people who might be activists, people who might be public policy makers, people who are uh, part of the general public, but then we also have philosophy <laughs> professors right, and, and right. the academy too. Um, so, so they'll all be used to interfacing with information on the web in a slightly different way. Exactly. With something that works for all of them. And if something looks too much like Facebook, that'll be putting, you know, something, some, some of them off. And, you know, mm -hmm. so we're, we're going to have to find our own kind of uh, uh, visual and, um, and, otherwise interface so it's that's going to be exciting but i think one of the challenge one of the exciting challenges from my perspective is the idea of engaging um the public uh, all the way down to the design level of the interface right so we were t talking even yesterday here at the conference about the importance or at least dean you were tweeting about the importance of listening to your audience listening to the public and then making changes to the interface based on that yeah, I think that's what could be one of the most important things here is that we have a number of people who do user experience design who really know how to um, do the, kind of the expert analysis of what will work and what won't work. So that's really going to be the first layer. We're going to really talk to the experts. We've already lined up a number of people from different journals um, who are really interested in new platforms, who have existing platforms. So they're going to be important voices as we initially start. And that's usually what we try to do at the beginning is try to pull together the experts who have a lot of um, experience with these kinds of things. But that can be problematic. If you only engage the experts on our side who think they know what they're doing, um, then you can often get to, we built something for us. Right. right. And uh, I think we're going to engage enough people from different spheres who are working with online journals now um, that will mitigate some of that. But at a certain point, we're going to have to engage the larger public. We're going to have to engage the philosophers. We're going to have to engage graduate students mm -hmm. um, in this. We're going to have to uh, engage the lay public to see um, what they like and what they don't like and be able to be a little agile and nimble and be able to make changes. Right, right. And that's where the, the, the already existing uh, group of, of, of 
public philosophers or philosophers who are who are working on on issues at the intersection of, of uh, public agency, public action, um, will be very helpful. They'll provide uh, the context that we've made with with uh, with those people already. Will provide another feature. You mentioned that uh, not only uh, do we need to uh, have the people who have worked on journals, we need the people who. Uh, one set of, of, of groups or one set of end users right, who we can think of as being largely responsible for uh, for contributing content, um, uh, especially initially. Uh, and then there's also the set of uh, sort of the broader set of people who um, um, who will be who are not already engaged in public philosophy and and uh, for whom uh, the the entryway could very well be this. Uh, this, this platform that we're that we're designing. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we're also well, we're also thinking. I mean, that this goes down the line in the whole process of how material gets um, curated into the journal, how uh, decisions get made about what gets voted up and gets voted down in terms of uh, if we have a daily, weekly, monthly feed of you know interesting articles that then might get invited to be in a collaborative space. So it goes from the very you know, are we going to have a bookmarklet that allows people to easily, you know, recommend a recommend a website that they're on to to be in the sort of feed? To um, what does it look like when you're in there uh, reviewing an article? What does this collaborative writing space look like? So there's all kinds of different elements of this. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the real challenge: is you um, don't just have one simple interface; you have multiple interfaces. The advantage we have now over the past is that we can, with HTML5, we can be much more nimble and make changes, um, do different kind of things rather quickly. Um, we'll also have a responsive design because we really have to make this available on mobile devices, right. on tablets. Um, people are going to have to be able to engage it in different platforms and in different environments. So. Um, that's going to be very important. Yeah. But Especially when, when one of the goals of the journal is to meet people where they are. So when, you know, I think as people are out and about seeing things and doing things, to have access to the journal on mobile devices, even to, you know, maybe take pictures or, you know, use a hashtag on a tweet or something to get the content in into the journal or at least to alert the journal that, hey, this is going on, this might be of interest to, to us as a as an endeavor. And that's going to be really important. Um, uh, you know, there's no sugarcoating it. Doing a niche social network like this is very difficult. Right. And to make it successful is going to take some years of kind of priming the pump, seeding the information. Um, the one thing we do know over the years is that while good interface design is critical, um, good content is what people come back for. They'll come back to. We have some rather old sites um, that date back to the turn of the century that are heavily used because they have the kind of uh, information that people really want to use and they have the kind of information that, that they're seeking. So that's going to be of prime importance. Um, we can have the best interface design in the world, and if we don't have the content that people want, then, then it really won't work out. The other thing about a niche social network like this is, as you're saying, it has to interface with the other kinds of social networking people are already doing. Right. You know, open ID will allow them to use their idea that they use for Facebook or Twitter and, and, uh, and get in here. Nobody likes to remember another username and password. Right. You know, Twitter will have to become, um, you know, something that's 
part of this easy kind of access point. Um, RSS feeds will become another way in which we get information in now from people who are blogging about these right. things. So um, if, as long as we have those kind of connections with where people are working now and what they're doing, it can help to be much more successful. But content is king. Yeah. Well, and that's where we're, that's where our challenge, Mark, and my challenge really is the, is the harder one we've been saying from the beginning is the technology probably is going to be, however difficult that's going to be, is going to be easier than the building the community. And as Mark mentioned at the beginning, we have the public philosophy network, which is going to be key to uh, moving forward with this. There's a lot of philosophers and activists and, and policymakers um, and citizens who otherwise uh, have either had some training in philosophy or just interested in philosophy out there. Uh, we've had some a couple of good conferences at the Public Philosophy Network, another one I think coming up in uh, another year or so. Um, so uh, we had we do have a community there built in, but you know we're going to have to figure out how to get, engage them right. and uh, and expand that community. Right. Well, the nice thing about the internet that I think is really exciting. Well, two things as a closet philosopher who has a degree in philosophy <laughs> right. um, way back um, in the old days. Um, I do think there's a lot more people out there who are really engaged in philosophy. I don't think we've really tapped onto that. I mean, the wonderful thing about the Internet is the long tail, the ways in which right. it finds people who have a very similar interest, you know, whether it's building dollhouses or, yeah. um, you know, doing... Uh, uh, you know, stargazing with astronomy. Um, right. You really, that whole citizen scientist, um, you really can bring people in. And I think philosophy has a huge following out there. I think a lot of people, we like to say the public now is disengaged and can't think in long terms. I, I just totally disagree with that. I think there's people out there really frustrated with a lot of the venues that they have today and I think would really appreciate something where things are thought through um, much more deeply. The other thing that's really important here is the Internet has global reach. Right. And I think we really, from the beginning, have to think internationally. And we do know in other countries um, that philosophy is, is much more popular and right. has a public venue. So I think we can tap into those things as well. Yeah. The um, one of the things that uh, Mark's been talking uh, about is you know, the issue of uh, crowdsourcing and community sourcing, and that's something that you, Mark, you wrote on the uh, blog, uh, public philosophy blog about. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that that difference and sort of what we're thinking about with regard to community sourcing? Well, yeah, the uh, the basic idea is whatever else people mean when they talk about uh, crowdsourcing, uh, the the term itself carries with it this connotation of there's an in there's an in group that has determined what the problems are, determined what the issues are, and determined what acceptable answers to the questions will be, uh, and then they uh, simply use the uh, or make use of the uh, the power of the crowd uh, to do the computing, so to speak. Um, whereas what um, what we're thinking about is uh, is is an endeavor that involves recognition that we're already working within communities uh, uh, where community members are involved in identifying the problems. Community members are involved in uh, articulating what the what the most salient challenges are and articulating what could count as as reasonable reasonable uh, solutions to our problems. And so, when we're when we're opening things up, so to speak, um, we're we're drawing on the the vast. Uh, network of, of of already connected persons who are who are working in community and not uh, not setting things up in terms of the, uh, the the public as the other the public as the crowd right. Right. Uh, uh, because there is no uh, you know um, there's uh, a, a crowd is just uh, an assembly of 
atomistically conceived individuals right. and uh, we're, we're thinking about the fact that there are already communities out there uh, and that um, larger communities can be built up out of out of smaller communities. Yeah. And, yeah, go ahead. No, I, th- I think that's really important and I think the notion of community sourcing is a real good notion for us to enter into this. You know, the secret, the dirty little secret of crowdsourcing is um, you know, you can have lots of people participating, but what you really have is a very dedicated core of people who are doing most of the work from, you know, Wikipedia on down. Whether that large core is, is, is large, it's still not even near the number of people actually consume and use Wikipedia. And I think we really have to think about that community in ways in which we can reward them for being participants and be part of us. Yeah, right. I mean, I think one of the things that we've been talking a lot about in working with Mellon on the grant and in trying to articulate what this public philosophy uh, journal endeavor is, is to talk and remind people that it's not about cent- recentering the philosopher at the you know in the de- in public debates. It's about um, if, uh, approaching public problems with a philosophical vocabulary and perspective, um, and 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 also prepared to learn as much as to uh, contribute to the conversation. And so, I think that's one of the things that um, is is also going to be a challenge in the sense of sort of what do people expect when they hear the word public philosophy, given the way they've understood philosophy and philosophers for, for certainly for generations here in the United States. Um, so it's not about, uh, it's not about, pub- it's not about um, being famous, right? Right. right. And, and in some ways we could think about it as reintroducing or, uh, you know, from a certain perspective, reintroducing the philosophical aspect of public deliberation. That is what so many of us as, as Dean is uh, mentioned earlier, so many of us have just become sort of uh, cynical about the fact that the, the level of public discourse is where it is right now. Um, and those of us who uh, who have been trained uh, to think philosophically and to recognize uh, that, the, that the challenges that we face um, are both very challenging um, and not as black and white in terms of you're with me or you're against me or in terms of uh, we just we just differ on fundamental principles, right? Um, the Sort of the appeal to differing on fundamental principles itself, it seems to me, is can be a very lazy way of, of refusing to engage. Um, whereas when we when we sift through the the real challenges that we're facing, we see that it's rarely fundamental principles that we different that we uh, differ on. It's it's almost always uh, the ways that we're uh, interpreting particular situations, the ways that we're understanding the stakeholders in particular situations, and how they're related to one another, and and what the most important uh, ends to be uh, to be considered are. Um, and so that um, you know the idea of um, going back to the to the ancient Greek philosophical conception of uh, of uh, a public uh, public discussion of these uh, of these in a, in a manner uh, that is informed uh, by uh, informed by uh, various perspectives without taking uh, without taking the, the the sign of plurality to to, to be uh, uh, um, uh, the Something that undermines the sense that, uh, right. that that we can have a discussion about this, and that we're just going to have to break up into our factions right. and, and disagree. No, and I think that's really important. And I think again, here the internet is important in thinking about this because a lot of times we often think of critical debate only in terms of the twenty-four hour news cycle. Right. Um, but what's really important, if and if you go out there and look on the web, and what's brought forward is the whole notion of the prosumer. Um, Right. That people are really interested in producing things, and you know, 
the number of blogs out there that are long, deeply detailed. People are really thinking through things. Um, you know, people are concerned with these issues. There's there's activist groups around the country who are engaged in trying to um, make change. And I think this kind of public philosophy, where activists can, you know, not only kind of put forward their stance, but really understand what undergirds the other. What right. what really, you know, the, you can't just overrun someone and think I'm going to make change. So you have to get inside their mind. You have to understand who they are, and um, and that's where we change. You got to change their hearts. And so, I think a forum like this um, that will take those people out there who are thinking deeply, who are activists, and bring them together to engage mm -hmm. um, in critical debate, um, in critical thinking. And I think that's the key here. Is what we're really looking for is that kind of critical thinking. Right. Well, and I think well, I mean one of the things that excites me about this is the uh, attempt to blur the boundary between the academy and the professional way philosophy has been done and has come to um, uh, to be done with a more publicly oriented uh, debate and discussion. And so one of the things that um, is, is exciting is this idea that um, we, uh, we want, on the one hand, for the articles we find there to be scholarly rigorous and to have resonance with academia, but also to be accessible in a way right, right. that uh, often uh, articles in philosophy aren't accessible, both uh, sort of understandable, accessible, accessible in the sense of being understandable and clear and coherent. You know, technical rigor, yes, but some explanation of terms have to be involved, but also accessible in the sense of um, you, there's no wall between uh, for access to the journal itself. It's an open access journal. I think that's a, another aspect, another important aspect of community comes in there where um, it wouldn't be a community if, uh, if it were f uh, academic philosophers going out amongst right. the masses hmm. and, and, and delivering pearls of wisdom. Right. In this um, paternalistic isn't way. That, isn't, isn't that what they do? Well, that, that, is, that is what they do, and then they return to their, uh, to their quiet dirt, writing right. spaces and, and complain about why nobody, uh, nobody's taking the brilliant advice that they've been giving. Um, uh, so, so it really is, um, as you said, it's not so much putting the philosopher at the center um, as it is recognizing that those who have philosophical training can bring a certain voice to, to conversations that, uh, that others may not be is able to bring, but uh, that those voices are that that voice is 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 best heard in concert with others who um, who have uh, uh, who have particular experience in certain areas or who understand uh, uh, more clearly what the what the political uh, situation right. is or what the. Uh, the, the 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 way that various spheres of power are working within uh, within a problem context, and it's important also to think that it's not just about the academy reaching out to change the public, but that um, that there's a way in which we conceive uh, we understand that the academy itself is changing, uh, and that we understand that uh, there are people there are more and more people who want to be doing this kind of publicly engaged work, um, and that part of the mission of the of the journal is also to uh, help discover a way in which this work can be done in ways that are more like and more resemble uh, traditional scholarly publications so that they can uh, begin to be counted as such in, uh, within the academy. Which actually brings up uh, what you were talking about before, brings up another feature we might want to consider, like Wikipedia, where terms are highlighted. Yeah, right. Um, do. But one thing that I want to emphasize that we haven't talked about, and, and I should have talked about in terms of the technical infrastructure, that I think is going to be really important here is it's going to be multimedia. Right. That we're going to have the ability to have audio and video and I think to be able to present in those different media 
mediums is, is part of critical thinking. Yeah. Not only having words out there that people can read and, and think about, but the way in which we, we engage with video and video can help us to think about um, real social issues. And I think that's going to be a real uh, interesting challenge to figure out how to do open peer review of, of things that are presented in multimedia formats, say a podcast, say a uh, video, right, and asking our uh, reviewers to engage in. Okay, what are the scholarly? What's the scholarly value of this? How how do we assess the? You know, maybe something that's low production value but really high value in terms of content, and uh, how is it embedded into our? Um, Discussion, uh, you know, whatever text we have around the artifact. You know, we're here at the uh, Ithaca uh, conference, and we're we're people are gathering. So uh, one of the things I wanted to the just community is beginning ex- exactly. One of the things maybe we could talk about is um, we were here yesterday for the first day. We're we're set for the for day two, um, yeah. and we were invited to this and uh, rode into our melon plan to come to this conference um, because. They're doing a lot of talking about how to sustain research like the research that we're doing, like the scholarship that we're doing. How do you sustain journals like ours? What's the relationship between publishers and libraries and and, and um, uh, projects like ours? So uh, it's been really an interesting, well, day one has been very interesting. And um, so we're, we're here for day two. Any, any takeaways from the first day? Well, I think the, the biggest takeaway for me, and I think it's going to be important for our journal, and it's already happening, is in order for us to be successful, we not only have to engage the wider community out there on the Internet, we have to engage the, commi- the, the, the academics um, and the graduate students, as we talked about, and, and the undergraduate students. Right, right. Those are all constituencies, but I think an important constituency that we really didn't think about going into this are publishers and librarians and archivists. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I think here we have met a number of people that can really help us to, you know, had a lot of experience doing journals and has a lot of experience with uh, preservation and and sustainability. And, uh, you know, the more voices we can have come into this, I think the the better we will be in the long run. Um, Did you have a... Yeah, I I think that it's... um, it's, it's, some of the things that, that the speakers have been talking about have have encouraged us to think slightly from a different a slightly different perspective about our own workflow and about our own practices and what what is what what is above and what is below the radar for us. So, for instance, uh, learning about uh, or thinking about how uh, when we're searching for for scholarly articles, there are um, all sorts of features that go into into what determines which ones we come up with in right. what order, et cetera, right. that we aren't always uh, clearly aware we of. We, scho- just as researchers, right. aren't right. aware of. Right. Yeah. But those algor- are the- that's a part of what Dean's talking about with regard to algorithmic literacy. I mean, uh, right. Right. You know, what are yeah. the algorithms that are determining what, what gets delivered to us when we right. search? Right, and the, uh, the more the more of sort of the, uh, the, the diverse and different concerns that the various uh, stakeholders within the larger the larger process of change within publishing and archiving and scholarship, um, uh, the better we'll be at, at understanding the various partners that we right. uh, that we're seeking to have and at, uh, being able to articulate our own uh, our own project in ways that that make sense too and that uh, can be presented as potential solutions to problems that are being identified that we that we ourselves didn't identify right. but that, right uh, right that, that well I think and we're looking forward to this afternoon we're going to be meeting with some. Uh, people from JSTOR, so we're going to be interested in to hear what they say. They sort of reached out to us, uh, and uh, I think we got a little bit of a glimpse of some of the things that animate that, the JSTOR uh, process and uh, what they value, value, you know, 
delivering good content to, to readers. So uh, I'm going to be interested, I think we all are going to be interested in what they have to say about this open access journal that doesn't, um, you know, we're not planning to charge anyone anything for, for any of this. So um, how does that fit into the mainstream of uh, publishing? And obviously JSTOR is a nonprofit organization funded by Mellon originally. So um, that too is, is it, you know, it feels good to be in that sphere right, of, right. of uh, nonprofit uh, scholarship. You know, it'll be interesting to, to think down the line, are, are there revenue streams for sustainability? Yeah. Right. You know, can we advertise different documentaries, different kinds of uh, books right. um, that people might be interested in as part of this? Yeah, and hopefully, I mean, the vision is that we have content that's compelling enough that journalists and others will want to come to the site, so we will get some page views, and, um, and it will be a place, hopefully, where people will even just tap into the stream of content that's coming through. Uh, and so, yeah, there there may be some room, and you know, we did write that into the, the proposal as well, uh, that that might be a way of sustaining it in the long run. But it's also great to have uh, our two institutions, Michigan State and Penn State, you know, behind it and, and having sort of really uh, thrown their backing into it in the, in the course of the Mellon proposal. Well, uh, with that, I think we're getting ready to start the conference, so uh, thank you for joining us. This has been the Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of The Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been The Digital Dialogue.